Let's go. What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artisan Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, April 29th. And for some reason, it's still like cold as shit and uh, cloudy here in Winnipeg. Man. It's summer ever they not arrive. I've got no clue. Man. I hope, hope some days it comes. Uh, hopefully, you guys are having a good week. Uh, I've been heads down just writing code all week, man. It's been a long, long time since I've done that. So it's been awesome. Um, super excited to have all you guys here so far in the building. We got Russell Willis in the building, Ken G, Luke Rose is in the house too, man. So, so happy to see you guys here. Auntie, what's going on, man? Um, but hopefully you guys do get a chance to tune to the episode that has not yet been released, but the episode I'll be releasing this weekend is with the one and only people's data scientist, Mr. Danny Ma. Uh, we recorded this episode live back in October. So it was live streamed on YouTube and on LinkedIn. So if you saw it there, um, that's all good. Just tune in the podcast anyway, because then you can listen to it again. Um, but yeah, this month has been pretty, pretty good, man. Had a, had an amazing lineup this month. Uh, just to remind you, right, not only do I have Danny Moss episode releasing uh, this weekend, uh, we had Shannon Nantasamat, the data professor. We had Christina Stathopoulos. We had Natalie Nixon. We had Andrew Jones as well. Super, super stacked month, man. A lot of great people uh, came onto the show and had a lot of awesome conversations. So please do tune into that. Um, if you got any questions, if you're tuning in on LinkedIn, if you're tuning in on YouTube, Twitch, wherever the hell you're watching this thing, man, if you guys got questions, please do let me know. Drop it in the chat, drop it in the comments. I will be watching and keeping track of those uh, questions. Um, so I told a friend of mine, Karen Jean Francois, that I'd help her out a little bit. She sent me a survey. Um, with a bunch of really, really interesting questions all about the concepts of data science and business life. And I said, I'll do her one better than me answering those questions because um, I'm not that interesting. But I told her I would ask these questions during happy hour and get people's perspective on it. I think they are great questions. Uh, we've got three of them. Um, you know, we'll get through a couple of them. Uh, but if you guys have questions and you're watching on like the uh, chat or, or, you know, wherever you are watching, if you got questions, we'll get to those. But first question is this, uh, Karen's asking you guys uh, to provide the example of a data science or data analytics project that failed uh, because it wasn't aligned with the business needs or objectives. How was that received? What were the consequences? Uh, so these are interesting questions. Um, so I'll start with that, dude. I remember like, one of the first like data science jobs I had was at this company here in Winnipeg called Bold Commerce. And I was like one of the founding members of the data science team. And they wanted, they wanted insights into the customer base. And they had a Tableau license, one Tableau license. And they're like, oh, we got this thing, we paid for it, do something with it. Um, and so what did I do? I uh, went ham, basically. I created like the most fucking dope, amazing dashboard imaginable um but people didn't know how to use it didn't know how to interact with it they didn't know what the hell it was that they were looking at um and not only that it was one license so in order for anybody else to see this amazing dashboard we had to like uh play like a hot potato with the credentials and only give it to like one person at a time so that was really really frustrating um but we got more people coming into the room so i'm going to repeat the question and hopefully uh, we get some responses. I would have let Ken 
for this one to see if you've got any war stories or Ken, right next to Ken is Luke Gross as well. I'd love to hear about uh, any war stories you got, but an example of a data science, data analytics project that failed because it wasn't aligned with business needs or objectives. How is that received? What were the consequences? If you are listening on YouTube or on LinkedIn and you've got a war story you want to share, go ahead and uh, let me know. I'll give you a, a link into the Zoom. Um, Ken, go for it. Yeah, I got one that comes to mind. So when I was an intern in grad school, I had a data science project at a large um, manufacturing company. And it, it had to do with, uh, so with, with trains. And so trains would come in and a person had to decide if they should fully tear down the engine, take it apart, and then put it back together again, clean it, whatever it might be. And I was tasked with building an algorithm that would essentially replace that, that work. Uh, there was one person who did that job or in, in each place that they would tear things down. And so the only person I could get data from was the person whose job that this algorithm in theory would replace, um, which is not a good situation to be in. The other problem though, is there's no ground truth in that scenario. You only have if the engines were torn down or if they weren't torn down. And it was based on this person's judgment. So the best model that, that I could build would just be a replica of what this person is doing. And so there was just an inefficient amount of data. The problem was scoped incredibly poorly. And I was coming in as an intern trying to solve this and I produced absolutely nothing because it was a flawed problem to begin with. So to me, you know, maybe it's not related to like the vision and, and misunderstanding the stakeholder, but it is a problem with misunderstanding the actual problem that's at play by the people that scope the problem to begin with. And so, you know, to, to me, I mean, that's about as bad as you could get, right? <laughs> is that you're throwing this kid in, I was a kid at the time, at least I think, uh, to a problem that is with the resources and the people and the understanding of data that is that is not realistically possible to solve. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, Luke, if you want to share a story at any point, just let me know, man, just flag me down and uh, I'll be happy to call on you. Uh, in the meantime, let's go, to, let's go to Rashad. Rashad, you look drastically different from when I saw this in 24 hours ago. <laughs> uh, it's because I decided, decided to get a, a fly haircut, you know? That's nice. Afro. I like it. <laughs> I like yeah, which of my favorite story. Dominican barber. Yeah, but anyway. Nice. Hey, no, it looks good, man. It's a clean face. Mm -hmm. So uh, just, you know, there's a lot of people that just joined in. So pretty much what happened was a friend of ours, a friend of mine, yours, everyone's, uh, Karen James Francois sent me a survey. She had three questions on the survey. And they're all around the concepts of, uh, business alignment with data science. Uh, so we'll get through a couple of these questions, see where it takes us. But uh, this first question I thought was interesting and it was to provide an example of a data science or data analytics project that failed because it wasn't aligned with the business needs or objectives. How was that received? What were the consequences? Um, so Rashad, if you got a story, please do let me know. And if anybody else in the room here wants to share, I mean, I. I I want to go to Dan for sure because I'm sure he's got some good ones. But uh, if Eric, Joe, Tom, Russell, or anybody watching on LinkedIn has uh, has a story, please do let me know. Uh, Rashad, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's never happened. Every project I've ever seen has been aligned 100% to business, right? Because that works. Uh, yeah, I can think of some in my in my first job. Uh, so 
we were we basically like the first company I was with where I got my career start. We're basically selling data, and the idea was that we could use data science to compute null values of, of uh, key key columns, right? And then we could sell it and say we're more complete. And so, like the, the use case was like um, be able to get lift basically in the percent of data that we have, and then maybe also sort of have confidence or something like that. Uh, the thing is like, so the, the business incentive there, uh, it, you might say is to fill in as much stuff as possible. Um, but this is real estate data, right? So real estate's very local and uh, it, there's, uh, I guess, emotion, there's personal feelings around it. So the, the data that this is being sold to, these people like know the areas inside and out. And so uh, with them, if it basically, if you see like uh, a record, if you see a prediction and it's like really off, uh, it will like dramatically reduce your trust. Like even a single record is just the way that a lot of people in real estate, broader, broadly speaking, think. And they're like, well, of course I don't trust this, this nonsense. I have to physically go there and see the thing, right? And so essentially like the incentive of the business imputation versus like what the customers would react to were, were not aligned. And so it ended up being this big discussion, like what essentially it boiled down to what success metric should we use or and prioritize? And um, so people kept going back and forth. And then uh, that combined with switching technical platforms multiple times basically led to the situation of we fit a model. It looks pretty good. Is it good enough? No one knows because we couldn't actually get access to the people selling this data to to learn more about the customer. And eventually like one data scientist left eventually. So yeah, it like took too long to like get to value. And then it, and then it led to people getting bored on the data science side and then business being like, well, we read this article that said we need data science, but I don't really know what more, right? So it was kind of like a start and stop thing. There's definitely something that happened to me early in my career too, because I get like so hyped up about a project. Yes, we can do it. It's going to be awesome. And everybody else around me gets hyped up. But the time to value is like this long tail. And it's just, yeah, it just doesn't build well for anyone. Then uh, let's hear from you then. Uh, anybody else want to uh, share a story? Please do let me know. Either uh, raise your hand or drop it in the chat that you'd like to be uh, called on. Shout out to Joe Reese. Joe Reese can see again. That's been a while. Uh, Joe Reese out there at the Berkshire Hathaway uh, shareholder event. That's, that's dope. Yep. Uh, go for it, man. Yeah. Also, like Rashad, I've never been on one of those projects before, but a friend of mine told me a story once about one of their projects. And it was kind of interesting because early on in my career, the only way, especially in the data science side of it, the only way I could get anybody to do anything was I had to build out the ridiculous business case. So for, you know, the first three years, I didn't run into this at all because I had to spend so much time begging people to let me do data science to open up their budgets that it was always lined up with business value. And then uh, about, it was, yeah, it was 2015, ran into a project that was uh, social media where they wanted to improve social media engagement and get their brand's uh, image up. And, you, you know, like all the vague stuff that usually comes with early maturity marketing projects. And I started out with that client and they said, oh, you understand social media. Hey, can you, can you jump on this? Because, you know, you're on social media too. Oh, you'll finally. So I got in and I made the mistake that I think everybody makes where you get wrapped up in everybody who's really excited about something and you don't know what it is. 
but they're excited. So I got excited and I just started doing what they told me to do. And it wasn't until like two weeks later where I finally stopped and went, wait, 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 wait what's the business case for this? Wait, what, why am I, why am I so excited? What am I doing? And that's literally where it was. It was two weeks later. I should have known better. And, you know, we went to try to figure out how to, what was the value of engagement? What was the value of a view? What was the value of a like? What was the value of a share? And it turned out like their entire audience was wrong. They had bought followers and that's what they had grown their audience from was buying a bunch of followers. So most of their followers were actually not even interested in what it was that they were selling. And they had to re, uh, pretty much rebuild the entire following. And it was, uh, it was a tragedy. But yeah, that was like the only takeaway we did was we finally analyzed their their customer network and realized that their social media channels were not going to produce any value. Thank you so much. Uh, shout out to uh, Shashank is in the building, man. I think like one half of all of YouTube data science creators are uh, in the building right now. Like that's that's pretty dope. Uh, good to have you here, man. Um, <laughs> Tina's taking a nap in the other room. <laughs> Is he taking the nap? Who is no, Tina? Oh, Luke and Ken are here. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, uh, it's just saying. So the question that uh, I kicked off the, the, the sorry to put you on the spot. Hope we don't hope we don't mind. But uh, the question I kicked off the session with was uh, provide an example. Okay, so background. This is for a friend's uh, uh, podcast survey thing that she's doing, and the question is. Please provide an example of a data science or data analytics project that failed because it wasn't aligned with the business needs or objectives. How was that received? What were the consequences? Uh, you got any war stories for us, Shashank? Yes. Okay. Similar, but not exactly. Um, we had a project where, so long story short, a um, bunch of directors would go into a meeting with a higher up at the company, right? So usually like a chief whatever officer. And uh, the directors had no data to like, you know, actually like talk about what they were doing. So they'd all come to the meeting. They'd all just kind of like shoot the shit. Um, and let me know how PG this needs to be, but they, they'd all come and like shoot the shit and then um, not really talk about anything of, of, of like use really. Um, and what happened was we would have to create a, um, like an entire deck for them uh so this is like a client i was working for we had to create like an entire deck for them to like you know go into each of these meetings with but it turns out that half of the metrics that we were asked to collect um were not actually tied to the business objectives uh, of like what they actually needed to accomplish or the business of, or, or the metric itself became a target and i'm sure you guys all know that famous quote you know when a metric becomes a target it ceases to be useful um, really, really important for something like social media, for example. Uh, like I, I just heard about the whole fake followers thing. And uh, um, yeah, I've, I've uh, w witnessed what that does to people's accounts and just how like it, you, you think you're making progress until you actually have to do something with that following and no one cares about anything you post. Um, but yeah, we went ahead and like created these metrics and everything for them, put it all up in this like, you know, great format and everything. And then we find out that when, when the we find out that in this company, there was a, a couple of directors whose departments were managed so badly that they didn't want us to actually release the results of the data that we'd all put together. Um, so I would say, yeah, it, it, the, the kind of stonewalling we received over there made sure that metrics that were relevant to the business 
did not get released to the chief officer. Uh, and because it was a client, I was like, okay, screw this. I'm not going to like, you know, sit here and try and convince you to do what's good for you. Um, you know, if I was working at the company, it would be very different. But uh, yeah, no, that was that was, that was a, kind of an example of how we were stonewalled from showing the business uh, metrics that were relevant to them. Um, no idea what's going on with them right now. Hopefully it's a happy ending to that story because that sounds like yeah, we should show it eh. sure, man. <laughs> you go I'm, I'm cool with it going either way. Very, very uh, I'm gonna move. Yeah, I'm going to move on to the second question that, that Karen had. Uh, so it's kind of like the opposite question. So when you think about you know, any projects you work on, data science, data analytics project that was aligned with the business needs or objectives, how was that received? What was the impact for that? Uh, let's go to Joe uh, Reese for this, and then uh, uh, Eric Sims, and then Russell, if you want to share, let me know. Uh, let me know how your audio is doing, too. I see he's uh, Apologies in advance if my uh, uh, voice is, uh, video is going to shake me up. My grandma's internet is not great. Um, so uh, it's, it's a step up from AOL. Um, so, so far, so yeah, good. What, yeah, what happened when it worked? Um, everyone got to keep their jobs. So that was a, that was a plus. Um, yay. So... Yeah, I, I would say it, it, the weird thing is when it, when the business is aligned, it, it seems like it's almost seamless. Like it just sort of everything clicks and it just works. So um, I think a lot of my business is, is going into situations where it, it doesn't work. But I would say um, the companies where it does work, I never hear from them. So everything's working great. So it's so I, I think that's that's usually what happens. You never know about it, actually. Or or they might write a blog post about how awesome it is. But uh, you know, those are the kinds of successes you want. So I guess it's like uh, installing plumbing or something that works. You just don't care. It just does its thing. So it's awesome. So I'm curious how other people uh, see, though. Yeah, yeah. Plumbing is a sort of uh, spot for me. Uh, I, sorry, I just triggered you. <laughs> yeah, I just... Oh, still, they still, have not, they still have not yet fixed my basement. Uh, so sorry about that. It's like electrical wiring when it works. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a funny story for why my basement has been taking so long. So uh, this could be an interesting uh, whatever. Uh, so the the insurance adjuster that was in charge of my claim, he was on the verge of retiring. Was about to retire, you know, a month or two after taking our claim. Uh, but then he had a bunch of unused vacations. So as soon as our claim went in, he went on vacation, came back, retired. Uh, and so then our claim was lost in the process, which is why it's taken so long to get the basement back up and running, which is extremely frustrating. Uh, but Eric, let's let's hear from you, man. Do you have a happy story for us? Or we're, sure. I, I guess I guess like projects could could be aligned with business needs and objectives and still fail. So I guess it could go either way, right? That's true. Real quick. Speaking of claims and weird things that happen, we had a place that had some basement flooding, but we were renting it. So we were like across the country at the time. And then we found out that the person who that was responsible for the flooding, because it came from the neighbors, had actually died. And so we had to like figure out like, okay, how do we now get in touch with their insurance or whatever? Does it need to go through probate, blah, blah, blah. It was a headache and a half. And I was like trying to figure it out. And then finally I managed to like look up this person's uh, kid who's you know older than I am um, online and like gave him a call. Turns out 
they weren't dead. <laughs> um, and much, it, it was, it was really, really weird and complicated. Eventually we got it figured out. I'm, I'm grateful that they're still alive. Um, but anyway, um, data science analytics project. <clears throat> okay. So how was it received? So I actually have a project like this in process right now. And I would say it was received really well because it was actually the business's idea. Um, product team says, Hey, we have this, this feature thing that we think we could maybe leverage to accomplish, uh, to, to improve our revenue and yada, yada, yada. And so that's been something that I've been working on for quite a while, um, to get it into a good place. And so the reception has been really good. And sometimes I feel kind of bad because it's like, Hey, I've got this cool project I'm working on, but I can't like totally claim credit for having this great idea of how to use it because it came from my stakeholders who just needed, you know, me to do some work so that we could do it. Um, which, you know, feels like, darn, I can't take credit for it, but it also feels like, yes, I don't have to sell it. Um, because people are already sold on it. So that's in process right now should be going, should be deployed probably in the next week or two. So, Pretty excited about that. Hey, nice man. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. Uh, Tom, how you doing, man? Been, been, been a long time, brother. I'd, uh, I'd like to give an announcement. Um, Y'all might have known I was lead data scientist at AI Strategy, and um, that wasn't working out. I just informed my CEO today that I, I was leaving to go join uh, Echo Global Logistics. And um, I'm super excited because it has to do with the shipping industry and the logistics around that. And a lot of advanced stuff can be done there. But the amazing thing is it was a very amicable leave. Um, my CEO wasn't mad. My teammates weren't mad. We agreed that whatever I discovered, I'd still share with them. They'd reach out to me if they needed help. So it was really good to see how good natured the whole thing, the new groups treating me like a superstar and make me feel highly valued, which is always wonderful. And um, it's a big increase in pay too. So just excited all the way around. And um, regarding, the, regarding the other thing about, um, I, I think I will never meet anyone that was more stupid about making sure their data science work was aligned to a business objective than me when I first started trying to do that stuff. Now, in fairness, I'm not sure the term data science even existed then, but um, I learned the hard way, geez, Tom, you taught control system design for five semesters. Couldn't you have abstracted those principles and applied them to getting frequent feedback from the business on whether what you were working on would really serve someone's needs or were you just over there trying to develop cool stuff that no one may know how to use. Oh man, that's why most of these hairs are gray right now. So just, uh, just that's, that's my public confession for the day. Tom, thanks so much. And also congratulations to you, man. That's, uh, that's awesome. I'm excited for you. Very, very excited for you. Big opportunities, moving up. Uh, Luke, any stories back there? Uh, does not look like it. Um, any questions coming in from you? Got the I have a bad. I have a bad one, but not a good one. All right, let's hear, let's hear let's hear the bad one. Okay, so a bad one was um, I was assigned to a team, a uh, supply chain team, for six months, 
And we were, I was in charge of basically building out some sort of analytical tool to monitor supply chain performance. And uh, we found out that the data we needed was actually pretty difficult to get um, inside of this other application. And so uh, being like the go-getter and like bright-eyed and bushy-tail at the time, because I was like a young data analyst, it's like, oh, I can build out a solution for this. And so, um, you know, I asked everybody on the team for this. I'm like, hey, can, like, is this, a, is this data going to be good? Are we going to be okay with grabbing this data? So I ended up building out this whole solution. It, it took me a few months to build it out because, uh, frankly, I'm not good at data engineering. And uh, brought it in. And then after I got it in and I started to make some of these dashboards and share it with the team, they, one of the members was just like, this data isn't good. Mainly because the metrics were saying, like, they're part of the team, like, wasn't performing well. And so I was like, this data isn't good. We can't use this data. And basically they went around me and convinced everybody that the data was really bad and that we can't use the data. And so, yeah, so like months of uh, work, uh, just like down the drain and not even be able to use this data and the solution that I built. And yeah, as far as the impact, I mean, like I said, I was only there for six months. So it was coming time to my end anyway. I transferred away and you know, the company just lost all that time and effort for me there. I mean, I learned some stuff about data engineering, but that was the only value out of that whole experience, unfortunately. Hey, you got paid too. That's fine. I got paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And and you got to share that story live and direct. <laughs> data science happy hour. So that's, that's also the best. Uh, if you guys got questions, listen to me on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Twitch, wherever it is, uh, or you can hear in the link. If you guys got questions, please do let me know. I'm happy to take your questions. Um, so, Nikki, good asking what what are what stories are we sharing? So Karen Jean Francois, who also has a podcast as well, thanks Women Data Podcast. Uh, she sent out the survey, and, um, and she was just asked me to fill it out, and I was like, oh hey, well I could just use these as questions for your data science happy hour. Do you mind? She's like, go for it. That'd be awesome. Um, so there's a list of three questions, and uh, questions range from provide an example of a data science or analytics project that failed because it wasn't aligned with the business needs or objectives. How is it received? What were the consequences? Think about a data science or data analytics project that was aligned with the business objectives. How was that received? What was the impact? Uh, and then also the final question here is, uh, if you could share an example of when an advanced solution was built but wasn't implemented because these stakeholders weren't receptive or wanted something more simple. Uh, so we got a good one for that. Uh, but we can go any, you know, touch on any one of those, or if anybody else wants to touch on any one of those, please let me know. Just go ahead, raise your hand, or let me know in the chat. Yeah, I can. Well, I, I would honestly, honestly, for all the projects that I've done, and this is gonna make me sound like a terrible engineer slash data scientist slash everything. I'd say, you know, there were more failures than successes, if I were to be honest, but it depends, right? If you, like, I think sometimes the project not going to production, honestly, it, that's insight on its own, right? So part of it's also how we're defining failure. So for example, if you go through a project and then, uh, so for example, like I've, I've done things like build dashboards or reports, um, people were like, oh, we want to figure out here was a common one was we want to figure out the propensity of these customers to purchase like these products or even like which sales teams, you know, are like, which sales reps should we recommend to sell this product? 
And then we, we dive in and it's like, oh, that would be interesting, except like all the sales reps are automatically assigned to like a certain industry vertical and geo. So already you won't have any like experimental data or even for example, like on the healthcare side. And, th- and this, is, this is this part that's really kind of interesting is like, so for example, like if you're dealing at a company that has like really, really big data, um, a lot of times you don't have to worry about like sample size because if you have millions and trillions of like click streams or whatever going through, like anything just becomes statistically significant pretty much, like any change. And for a company like Google, it, it might be worth it to have a 0.02% now. Okay, that's a 0.5% increase in like click-through rates. That That is like, can be very meaningful to a Google-sized company. But for a healthcare company, if you're talking about emails being sent to like a population of a thousand Medicare clients, that is so not even useful. That's not useful. So I think like something that, you know, we we sometimes tried, like when I was working as a data scientist at Teladoc, is for example, we would send out these email marketing campaigns and their email marketing is cheap, but we were also sending out physical like paper surveys and also sign up forms. And basically what what happened was that they weren't segmented or the sample sizes were not correctly calculated, which means you wouldn't, if you combine that with not calculating the effect size or, or the power, you basically just spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on mail that you can't actually use the results for to like improve your future campaigns. So there's definitely been stuff like that. And I think it sucked when I like did that project less so because of something that was like on our side, but more because we hadn't built that relationship with the business partner team where they felt confident, like, Oh, we can bring you in and we can help and you will help us design the experiment, you know? And I think that was a fail, but it was also good insight that like, Hey, we need to be like, you can't just have an engineer or data scientist operating without context or domain. Like they have to have this really tight relationship. And because we didn't invest in that relationship and we kind of held ourselves apart, ultimately like both teams kind of like, you know, both teams suffered. Right. Cause at the end of the day, like if you're working, for example, like a healthcare company, like your goal, usually, unless you're insurance, um, I wish your goal is to get as much money as possible. But if you're not at a healthcare insurance company, <laughs> if you're like a medical devices, your, your goal is to help people get healthier outcomes, right? It's to help them with their diabetes, help them with their chronic conditions, like you name it. So any loss of revenue is also a loss in like quality of life for them. So you know, there's been that. And also we've sometimes hired people where they had more of like the big data mindset. We're like, let's just toss big data out there. It's like, oh, great. Yeah. By the way, you only have a hundred patients that you can actually do quote unquote experimentation on. So have fun with that. Right. Um, but one of the sex, uh, one of the successes, for example, like, uh, was actually, I was celebrating today, which I was late to this, um, was so into it has like a week long hackathon. And it's meant to basically create a demo, create a POC, get it as close as you can. Um, You know, in my team, there's a project I've been working on for two, three months that was essentially, you know, can we, it answers the question of, can we deploy, can we get a, a data scientist model like out of development to production in basically under an hour? Because right now, sometimes the process is like, 
three weeks. <laughs> and even for a simple model, right? It's just because of the legacy tooling and all that. And this was like a project I was dragging on for two, three months. And it just felt like everything was so hard. It was like this octopus po- project where on the surface, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to crush it. And then it's like, you just get into so much red tape where it's like, oh, right. Except all our tooling is tied to this legacy systems and you have to go talk to this team. And oh, by the way, all this tooling is like owned by four or five other teams. And so, and I, I, and so my, my big fail was I wasn't asking for help when I needed to, when like, as I got deeper, I'm like, this is a project where we definitely need, we need just more hands on the project. Um, we need some like buy-in and all that stuff. And so finally, like the hackathon was coming around and I was like, okay, well, I could keep on holding on to the project and it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to help the team. Or I could kind of let go of the ego. I could offer up the project for the entire team to work on. You know, we'll, we'll crush the demo and we might get that executive buy-in. We'll get extra investment, all that good stuff. And that's exactly what we did. We crushed it in front of a bunch of the uh, VPs and SVPs at Intuit. And to me, that's like a big win. And so that's kind of what we were celebrating because even though it's like, it's, it's, it's 98% there. There's 2% where I edited out the video where it's like, okay, we have to copy paste some configuration files. That's okay, hand wavy. That's okay, it runs, right? Um, but you know, we were selling the vision and it, it's 98% there, right? Like it's, you know, there's like a few days of Google searching, but to me, that's like a win because people loved it. They're like, yes, this is what we want our ML ops, you know, vision to kind of look like this is a core part of it. And on the one hand, it's kind of embarrassing. Cause I'm like, okay, well, we like crushed 98%. Of, well, we crushed like 75% of the project in a week even though I was struggling with it for two months on my own. But I think honestly, that's a huge win. I'm like super excited for next steps. Um, they also told me I can go chill next week. So I'm like, yeah, um, you know, but the other part to point out was like the win was not independent. Like it, it was a team effort. So when we kind of combined different teams and we had different experiences, uh, we had a, a tech lead senior myself. I'm like between honestly, senior and junior. And then we had two juniors who were all just like working on it, different parts. And we coordinated and, you know, it came out with something really beautiful. So, you know, sometimes that myth of like the 10X or the 100X engineer is, is just that it's a myth, right? Sometimes it's not about the 10X or 100X engineer. It's about the 10X, 100X teammate. So I'm like, I'm super excited about that. So, you know, that's a win. There's a lot more losses than wins, honestly, in my kind of history, and 50% of those losses, I think, were just validation that that business idea didn't need to go forward or it didn't need, like, engineering effort, you know? So, I don't know. I'm, like, I'm, like, stoked. Awesome. I'm super stoked. That's awesome. That's a huge undertaking, huge effort to, like, get something deployed from scratch. What were you guys using? To, to- yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, not to give too much details, but essentially um, we had some... Uh, so we, we have some certain project templates that we use, but we had kind of built in some of these patterns into like a, a full application. So the data scientists would use this legacy internal application to get their projects set up, templated, um, get it deployed, all that. But it was really kind of, it was really smart in a lot of ways. It was really witty 
and powerful and robust. But that also meant it was very painful and things broke. And then, you know, when the M1 laptop came out, uh, there are certain things that Docker and TensorFlow decide not to agree on. So, okay, it's like, for ice, like a third of our projects are TensorFlow based. So what we decided was we were like, we're going to actually just toss the laptop out of the pipeline, like just get rid of it. The model, the package, whatever is never, ever, ever going to touch the laptop. And then we're essentially going to like lift some of the legacy parts out, but we're going to use, um, we use a combination, a lot, a lot of GitHub and also a lot of sort of GCP stuff. Um, but we're just going to do all that. So they never touch the laptop. Um, essentially they can develop it, test it. Um, it gets deployed as a, as a container. Um, and then, right. And then from there we can run a bunch of apps. So that's rough level of, you know, rough summary. Um, but the key sort of insight was there was a lot of legacy stuff we'd already built out that does work, but there is enough of it that wasn't working. So why don't we just get rid of the laptop and just do a complete remote dev environment? And so that was kind of what we did. And it was really fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm really, I'm that's, that's, yeah. that's awesome. That's interesting too. Cause like, I, I'm like, I do all my prototyping on a laptop on a M1. <laughs> so that, that would be very, very, very uh, let's go to Russell, then let's go to Ken, and then let's go to Eric. And by the way, if you guys have questions, please do let me know whether you're watching on YouTube, on Twitch, or on LinkedIn, or even here in the chat. If you got a question, let me know. Um, so we'll do this. So uh, we'll, we'll go to uh, Russell, then Ken, then uh, Erickson has a question. Uh, shout out to Keith McCormick. He's watching on LinkedIn. Keith, if you want to come into the Zoom room, let me know. I'd be happy to, happy to have you there. Uh, Russell Wilford. Thanks, Harpreet. Um, so, firstly, I, I agree entirely with uh, Mikiko. Um, usually, far more failures than successes if you're innovating uh, at a, uh, a good pace, you're likely to have far more failures than successes. Uh, and rather than having any specific uh, examples or stories, I've got a couple of um, lessons that I've learned by, by building data uh, products that if the consuming audience has a low data maturity or low data literature, uh, sorry, literacy um, level, it's far more likely that you're going to have a poor taker or you have to be very, very um, rigorous in producing something that's going to be optimized for their level. So that might mean that you produce something that's 10% of what you know you're capable of doing. You, know, you could put bells and whistles on some kind of data product that's going to be amazing and your peers will be you know patting you on the back thinking it's great but it's not going to serve the purpose for the consuming audience and i struggle with that sometimes you know if i have to build something that's really basic and i know it can be better but if you if you hit that target to begin with and then slowly iterate you can build the, uh, the increases to the product along with the data literacy and data maturity of the audience uh, and secondly, and again, also tied to um, to low data literacy or maturity, is the stability of the data itself. Uh, often, common reasons why we get a failure of uptake is uh, the stability of the data itself. <clears throat> so something breaks, 
the audience saying, oh, well, that's that's not working, so, you know, why should we even look at this? But the, the reason it's broken is because some of the primary fields have changed. You know, you need keys or, or something else. And part of the, the handover of a new product we give is, right, the data is, the data is key. The data has to stay unchanged. Don't make any changes to the data. And we get a call, it's not working. Have you changed anything? No, we didn't change anything. Then we look and see. But all these field names have changed. Ah, yes, we did. We, we changed some of the fields, actually, as I remember now. And and they, they're not able to initially make that connection that changing the fields breaks the product, even though we've made it very clear at the start. So um, the, for, for when the audience is, is very new to data, it's very, very common to get uh, obstacles with the uptake. Russell, thanks so much. Uh, let's go to Kenji, then after uh, Kenji, we'll go to Eric Sims uh, with Eric's question. And like I said, by the way, if you guys are listening on LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever you are, if you got a question, please let me know. Yeah, I got um, qu quite an interesting one regarding overcomplicating the problem. So in my line of work, I mean, I'm dealing a lot of the time with athletes, former athletes, like people that aren't, um, like inherently technical, right? Like they spent their entire life dedicating to a different craft that is not data, that is not business, that is that is not like a, a domain that has a like a lexicon that that we're familiar with, right? And I find that almost all of the solutions that we propose, they can still be useful, but we have to communicate them in in different ways, like like fundamentally very different ways, like with analogies, with case studies almost never in aggregate you have to say hey in this scenario if this happens like that is how you explain uh like the entirety of the model with these unique case studies which is like fundamentally different than what in theory we should be doing right because that's not how data works it, it doesn't work on necessarily a case-by-case -case basis all of our algorithms and models work when we have large volumes of information whatever that might be so i think that that's one one component i think is really interesting is I almost always have to dumb things down. Well, not dumb things down. I almost always have to simplify things um, to, to convey what the information means to the audience that I have. Another very specific example of this, oh, not of this, of, of uh, a, a data scientist not understanding the business need or overcomplicating the problem. Uh, my company, we collaborated with a very large technology company um, maybe one of the largest in the world who that was owned by a guy named whose name runs with Will Mates. Um, we um, <laughs> we uh, so we worked with them to to try to like uh, to to help build a model that would predict for golfers um, the probability that they would finish with a certain number of points by the end of the year, right? And to me that is a simulation problem, right? It's, it's very easy, like the best results you're gonna get, you just simulate out what happens, like there's constant states, whatever it might be. Hina is joining us and she's <laughs> unbelievably embarrassed. Um, but um, like from my perspective, very straightforward, that is, that is how we would solve it. It produces really good results. Uh, the data scientists on that team, they were trying to sell machine learning. So the answer to every single question that we would pose would be machine learning. You say, hey, what's this? They're saying machine learning is the answer. What's the question? And they spent two months working on this and never got anything. The first week we had the simulation ready and it was good to go. 
and they completely spun their wheels for all this time trying to, to fit a, a square piece into a round hole. And I think that when other things are aligned, a lot of companies actually do machine learning and AI projects for publicity, not for business value. And when things get modeled like that, we get really, we, we get in a lot of trouble. So I think that, at least for me, that's, that's a fun thing to think about is projects aren't always about like linear value that's created. Sometimes at the largest organization in the world, half of it is PR, and you have to think about the return on that investment too, right? Because if they said that they had created a machine learning um, solution, which was like, even if it was worse, but if it still worked, they could say they did machine learning to solve this problem. And um, I don't know, I just think that's like a really weird and paradoxical approach, but it's not all about just that linear value that's created. Mr. Smates uh, did, did appreciate uh, that hammer and nail type of situation. Will Smates, huh? What the name? Uh, let's go to Eric Sims. Uh, Eric has a question. By the way, I um, posted a link to the survey right there in the chat. If you guys want to come back to this, let me know. Uh, but I'm happy to take any questions you guys might have. Uh, shout out to Chris Aquino. Good to see you here. If you have a question, Chris, please do let me know. Um, Let's go to Eric. So I have been kind of thinking about this for a few weeks um, and trying to apply stuff, apply it in my work. Um, but I think today finally it kind of came together. It's like some words of like what my actual question is that I've been struggling with. And that is like, how do you switch in your mind between like root cause thinking why is this thing happening the way that it is and outward thinking to say what could be happening differently because they're way different. One, I feel like I'm like looking at the data and trying to explain it. And then the other, I feel like I have to turn and look out into the big, the wide world of possibilities. And, and sometimes I feel like, you know, a, a GM will be like, great, thanks for getting to the root cause of that. What are we going to do about it? And it's just like, I don't know how to like shift that, like, immediately uh, it's like task switching you know how do we how do you how do you make that switch let's go uh, to mark oh. oh mark and then we'll go to rashad uh what's up um can you hear me i'm, I'm on a new device yep. so i don't know if it's working yeah. cool yeah um so so i i'm definitely still learning this myself um, something that's been helping me a lot is noting, talking to my manager and being like, Hey, how can I switch? This is assuming you have a good manager, <laughs> but, uh, uh, how can I make this switch? And the way I typically frame it is I did this analysis. I identify this root cause. Um, but before I go to the stakeholder, I wanted to brainstorm with you. What do you think, uh, is kind of like a great next step to suggest to them? And I'll provide my manager, like three of them. You know, we can do X, Y, Z, we can do A, B, C, so on and so forth. But then give my reasoning, like, this is why I was thinking strategically, like, why this matters, right? Or this is the context in the market or context in the political <laughs> politics within our company of why this is happening. And the reason why I ask this constantly is that then becomes a discussion with my manager who has way more context typically above the work <laughs> I'm doing and can yeah. guide me on like what interesting things are there that would way you can pick up. And by doing that conversation over and over again, you start building that same sense they have. 
and it'll move away from conversations such as like, oh, well, maybe you should consider this to them just saying, yeah, I agree with you. And that's how you know, like, you're you're starting to kind of get that that strong sense. Um, so that's not like very tactical in the sense of like, how do you do that? But that's the process I use to pick up those skills. Um, and so something kind of, kind of going to the tactical thing, like, how do I switch? Like, how do I go from like, say for instance, I was like digging the data pipeline and like, oh yeah, we have this issue here, right? How do I make the like a meaningful uh, suggestion? And I'm completely blanking on on it. I'm gonna go go find it first and then send it to you. Um, but in my first data science job, uh, my manager was, used to be a nurse, <laughs> and so many times nurses would have to go and go to the physician and be like, "I did all these checks on the patient. This is, should be our next step um, that you should combine your expertise with." And there's like a specific model. Um, that they use mm-hmm. with every specific step so that of like explaining the situation and communicating it and then also providing the next step. Um, I'm going to go find it for you because it was just so transformational um, and like how I approach communicating and it really allows you to kind of like target exactly for the next first stakeholder. What's important? Um, what do you need to worry about? What's the context you don't even really need to consider and you just don't even bring it up to them? And then what's the next step they can take today? Um, that's really helpful. And I think another, another key thing I'll, I'll stop and let other people speak is not focusing on what's the overall solution, but literally what's, what can they start doing right now? Um, and sometimes those are two different things. Um, and sometimes the, the, what you can do right now is just enough to kind of like let them spin their wheels, come up with a better solution. Sounds cool. almost Thank like an Eisenhower matrix type of thing that you're describing. I'm not sure if that's, uh, it was like from nursing. It was like a, like a researched like model from nursing. Um, I'm gonna go find it. It's gonna bug yeah. me now that I can't remember it. That'd be, that'd be helpful. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, let's go to Rashad. And if anybody else can jump in here, please. Know, uh, Chasha, if you wanna jump in, let me know. Uh, uh, Eric, if you just wanna type in the question in the chat. So as a refresh, that'd be great. Let's go to Rashad. And then if you guys have questions, do let me know whether you're on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitch, or even here, and I'll add you to the queue. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, let me just clarify, you're essentially asking, uh, how do you switch your mind between thinking about the cause of things versus thinking about what you should do about it? Is that, is that what it was? I was trying to follow kind the of end like, of it. Yeah, so it's kind of like the cause of things that are versus thinking about like what we could do differently. Like, how are we going to change this process? How are we going to improve our business? How are we going to, mm. you know, make that, how are we going to get 30% more revenue in the next quarter or, or whatever, you know, just like something that I can't be like, oh, well, let me dig in and find the answer to that, you know, it's ah, more, right. I guess, abstract or creative. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Uh, I, interesting. I have personally not ex- experienced this dichotomy i mean what you're the way you frame it does sound a bit like deductive reasoning versus like sort of uh brainstorming like lateral thinking um so you're essentially framing root causes like this and that and like okay now what data do i have and like getting going down and eventually you reach like a an end point and it sounds like the other exercise in creativity is like uh you, you sort of think of it as like a vague sort of like the world out there, there's like an endless possibility for action, right? And so which of the million actions could we take? Um, mm-hmm. I think there is a way to merge this. I actually think you can 
I, I think about it in terms of uh, religion or metaphysics, uh, where the book, the book of John begins, in the beginning was the word, right? So people debate what created the universe, right? And uh, you could say, uh, you know, some, some people would say, if you really like, you can make assumptions or you could say, well, actually you can't really prove it one way or the other, right? You have things in reality that you can, you know, that you can observe in science. And so some people say that's beyond the realm of science. So I think of like thinking of, of causes as suggesting actions by concerning yourself with causes that you can do something about essentially. So, um, and so you're like, well, if I have the metaphysical understanding, maybe it would suggest different actions I take. So on the business level, it'd be something like you could concern yourself with the, with the root cause, but diagnose those causes in such a way that they suggest actions like people are leaving, people are churning because of this, therefore I should do that. Um, people like if you, I, I can't think of getting to a real root cause and then having no idea what to do about it. Um, but in terms of like changing the way of thinking, I, I definitely think that they activate different parts of your brain. Um, I personally found that it, that uh, I should engage in those at different times of day. Um, this is supported by research in Daniel Pink's book, When, The Secret Science of Timing. So it's, it's uh, you say that most people tend to be morning or afternoon people. And uh, that's the best time for like uh, very focused, logical thinking. And then at the time in your, I guess, your lull in the day, you tend to be better at lateral thinking. And so you might want to engage in that sort of uh, exploration. It's sort of directed, but not fully directed at those times. And maybe you'll come up with stuff. Probably, I mean, also like just going on walks, getting away from the computer. It's very different actions that you would take. But I think that ultimately you can link uh, a diagnosis of a problem to a course of action. Um, there's more on that sort of thing in Richard Vermelt's book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Um, which I one of my favorites of all time. So, you know, maybe that would help. Amazing book. Nice. I've read yeah. it before. Can't recommend mm -hmm. it enough. Yeah. Which one's really good strategy, best strategy? Yeah. That's going to say, I absolutely love that book, Win, uh, that Daniel Pink, any, anything Daniel Pink writes, it's, it's mm -hmm. amazing. Daniel, if you're listening, Daniel Pink, uh, I hope you write more books sometime soon. Uh, so Do the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've sent him countless emails. Uh, yeah, if you get caught like in a meeting and you weren't prepared for the, you know, uh, so what are we going to do about that? I'm going to kind of bust myself a little bit and hopefully nobody that's a client watches. I, I, I always go, well, you know, I came here to get some expert opinions and that's really where I wanted to start. Because I find, you know, if I if I ask the experts, I typically get a good starting point. So, you know, what's the consensus here? Uh, 100%, if you turn it around like that, you will buy yourself some time to think. <laughs> <laughs> because people will kind of jump all over themselves to meet the expectation you've just set of, I came to ask experts. And especially if you're dealing with senior leadership, somebody at some point will jump up because this is their opportunity to show off. And, you know, they truly senior leaders love being, I'm sorry, I didn't, I shouldn't have said that, but they, yeah, they kind of love stunting in meetings every once in a while. So it's, you'll get somebody who saves you for a few minutes while you think it through. And if you need to really switch gears to go from, I found a problem to now I need to find a solution. 
I'm, you know, that approach actually isn't terrible asking experts. But before that, if you're about to go into a meeting and present a problem, like I found an issue, always think to yourself, you know, you're going to always get asked, what should we do about it? You know, you're always going to get asked for a recommendation, but realize you've gone from describing something, your data is descriptive. It's telling you, hey, here's a problem. It's diagnostic. It's telling you, here's what's going on. But now you're being asked to predict something. And that's a completely different model. And that's the trap that a lot of data scientists find themselves in is they'll say, here's what's wrong. And then they'll try to use the same data and the same model to say, and here's what we should do about it. And you can't do that. You have to do, now they're asking you for a prediction or prescription of action. And the level of support that you have to have for either one of those is very much higher than just describing a problem or describing a situation. And sometimes it's a good teachable moment where you can say, I, you know, this is a good time for me to explain the difference between descriptive data and predictive and prescriptive modeling and analytics. It's going to be a significant amount of effort to really give you a good answer to that. There's a good educational moment too. So hopefully those are two good answers. One stall by time, the other one really to, to teach leadership that they're asking a very difficult question. You can answer it, but you can't answer it right away. I love that. Oh. I love that. Can't wait to ask what you guys think. Love it. If you go, go for it. And by the way, if you guys have questions that you know, uh, I'll more than happy to actually queue. Or if you want to chime in on Eric's question here, just like use the raise your hand and let me know and I'll actually queue. Uh, if you go, go for it. Yeah, I'll just go real quick because I think Mark found the, the model that he was looking for. Um, usually what I do is I kind of actually like Rashad's point about the whole like if you if you're really close to the cause, the solution's probably not too far away from that if you deeply understand like the root cause of what's going on. Um, but normally what I do at that point is like if they want an answer like right in 30 seconds um, or like a minute or what have you. Usually I'll say something along with like, I think I have some ideas, but why don't we uh, set another kind of follow-up meeting, let's say like a next day or two. And then that gives you enough time to kind of like squeeze in some initial sort of questions or, or kind of figure your thoughts out and do some sort of exploratory dive. What I kind of like to do is I usually like to get Google Sheets out. And if I know the cause, I'll actually just start like kind of using it as a pseudo decision tree sort of thing. Because what I've read is that kind of, a lot of times the way some people like to solve problems, especially if they're visual learners, um, you literally just get like a huge like drawing pad, circle the problem right in the middle. And then you literally start sketching out like all the different, like, you know, you draw the line out from all the different sort of things that could be like impacting it. And then you kind of like, will then fall through like, okay, like, but that's relying on this thing and this thing, this thing. And eventually you'll kind of get like a stack rank of things that are like short-term solvable versus things that are like long-term you know, you need to invest and other, and sometimes things that are like out of scope. So for example, like sometimes we'll get random, you know, like we'll get random issues with like NVIDIA packages or libraries and it impacts some of our pipelines. Um, what can we do about that? Well, we can revert to, you know, like an older version that's stable. Uh, we can, you know, do a PR to NVIDIA saying like, hey, by the way, this needs to be fixed. And hopefully they'll get back to it or any sort of you know maintainer of an open source package. 
Uh, but at that point, we're kind of like, yeah, we can't really do anything about it. We can maybe do a fork, do a patch. But um, I mean, it's different from an analytical problem, but there's like things that you can do. There's very easily, there's things that you can do not so easily. And then there's things that just are not within your scope of responsibilities, right? And ultimately figuring out like that stack rank of what you can do that's easy versus you know what's harder. Usually I kind of lean on my manager or um, other people. Like there are other people who are also not in leadership roles, but maybe they've been in the company for years and they know like the lay of the land. You know, they know the mind holes. They know the people to talk to. They know the backdoor conversations you should be having. Um, and so sometimes I'll, I'll pass it by them like, because they'll know they have boots on the ground. They know, they know what's up. Sometimes the leaders don't like they get, they have the higher, bigger vision. Um, so that's kind of how I do it, but I really love drawing out trees. I love, love tree. I hate the actual like trees algorithms because interviewers have asked me to try to implement them live. And I go, you're not paying me enough to do that now or in the future. But, <laughs> but like for, you know, I, ideation, all that, like, those are really kind of nice. So that's kind of how I like it. I just want to shout out for mind maps, right, Makiko? Yeah. Awesome tool. Yeah, mind maps are awesome. Yes, uh, Mark, go for it. I just wanted to circle back real quick. I finally, I, I remember I made a post about it like two years ago. I was able to find it. The model is called SBAR, which stands for Situation, Background, Assessment, and then Recommendation. And I found it was really powerful because the reason my manager gave it to me at that time is that I was doing these really deep dives. Uh, I, did, I was working in data quality, doing these really deep dives. And I was just overwhelming people. Like people just weren't listening. And she's like, yo, <laughs> take a step back. <laughs> Here's this tool and I implement it. And then people started listening to what I had to say. And so like to kind of give an example of like how, how it can be utilized is say, for instance, um, situation is you know people are trying to pull data and it's a month old and now they can't run their analyses uh background is uh it's in this system uh it's touching these endpoints right and it's stopping at this point this is where the the error is being caused um assessment is it's impacting 60 million records um and it's for this uh, set of time uh, and doing X, Y, Z, right? And then your recommendation is like short-term, we can just <laughs> um, run a, uh, something on the side, outside of the pipeline and then manually put it in there so people can do the work right away. But long-term, we need to do X, Y, Z, right? And so that goes from like that deep dive and analyzing to saying like, this is what you can do again tomorrow. And what's, what was really useful is like by having that format and putting it in that format and keeping it concise for each one, it was very easy to people to follow and know what's happening without getting too deep into the weeds. Cool, thank you. And that's called S, I posted that S B A R, is that right? Yeah, S B A R S bar. And I posted a link in the chat, um, a blog from the nursing. So again, it's all from nursing, but you can easily apply it um, to other domains. Awesome, thanks so much. Um, let's keep it going. Anybody got any questions coming in from LinkedIn? I'm seeing questions on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Um, don't see anything from here. Uh, I have another question. Nobody's got a okay. question. Yeah, yeah. Go for uh, it. Go for it. 
so this is, this is just a small question probably has a stupid answer but uh so i do any of you guys read the morning brew like newsletter i love the morning brew i read very few newsletters but that is one of them so morning brew is awesome and today uh they had like a little like word challenge thing yeah so they had they had a little word challenge where it said we have these four lists of letters and if you put one letter from each of them in a certain order over and over and over it will form a, two words in English that are opposites. And I thought, I could sit here and stare at this for a while, but there's no way I'm going to figure this out. But I could probably make something in Python that would just make this really easy for me. <clears throat> and so that's what I did first thing this morning. And uh, it spat out a bunch of, like, you know, a bazillion different combinations, these little four-letter combinations, and I scrolled through them, and then I thought, I can do one better than this. I can find the Enchant Library, which I didn't know existed, um, that's a dictionary, and just say, look at these four-letter combinations. If it's a word in the dictionary, show me those. And so that narrowed it down to like 20 words, 15, 20 words. And it was really easy to see at the point at that point that the opposites were work and play. Um, but I thought, and this is where my question comes in, so that's all just like calculated stuff, but where the language piece kind of comes in is, is how would you go about trying to compare, let's say 15 words, and figure out which one is the one's most opposite? Because, yeah, how would you do that? I thought like, okay, well, maybe it's like a, you know, it's a word, word vector thing. Um, but the problem is one of the other words is worm. And the opposite of work, I don't know if work has an opposite, but worm is way different than work. And play is not really that different from work sometimes. Um, so I kind of wondered what your thoughts were on that. Have you heard of word to vec? Yes. I yeah. don't know if I was one thing that I tried. So word to vec, you could take a word and it like find an embedding for that word. And then with those embeddings, it could be like arithmetic, like adding, subtracting probably the most efficient i'm not too sure um for example like if you were to do like a word to back on king minus queen you end up with the difference which would be gender like king right. minus man plus woman equals queen yeah something like that, that yeah, yeah. That, that, that example. but i don't um i don't know if you yeah. can select the vectors like yeah work but minus that, boring equals play i don't know when you think about like when you say words most opposite, do you mean like semantics or do you mean like in terms of just like the edit distance letters type of thing? Semantics, which is why I'm a little bit like, I mean, is work really the opposite of play? This was just a word, a silly word puzzle, but it really got me thinking about it. Yeah. So uh, I've had some, Tom, sorry, yeah. I've had some experience training GLOVE, global vectors from scratch, Eric. And if you'd like, um, we could do a one-on-one -on -one and then report back to the group or record a video of this. But what happened was um, pre-trained glove models wouldn't work for the specialized corpus I was trying to, to get uh, synonyms for. And so uh, it, it was a combination of three different machines. I called the whole thing uh, dung beetle because it was trying to make uh, Good structure from <laughs> crappy words. <laughs> Actually, I wish that had come up with the name. A teammate came up with it when he realized what I was doing. But yeah, glove was a major uh, component of it.
because it it's a little stronger on associative uh, strength than just uh, basic word to back. So if you want to do a session on it, I've, I've got a good write up on it even somewhere. Oh, that's the one I was thinking about was was love. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, uh, Mark. Yeah, go for it. So I'm just brainstorming right now because this just seems super fun. Uh, this is my brute force way I would approach it, kind of like a V1 that would avoid kind of like all the ML stuff beyond just like the text recognition. So you said you already have the words that are possible within that. Um, what mm -hmm. I would do is I would create a dictionary of those words where the word is the key and the value are the lemmas uh, of that word um, to reduce the variability. So like ran would become run, swam with him, swim, things like those. Um, and then from there, I would uh, take those lemmas and then run it through an API, like a dictionary.com API, or even just scrape it from the website, look up that, that lemma, and then get the list of every single antonym associated with it. And then uh, from those antonyms, create the lemmas from those antonyms, and then compare the list of words that I have um, that are the lemmas and the list of antonym lemmas and see if there's any matching. Um, again, very brute force, but I think that would kind of get you closer to a potential match. Um, there's probably gonna be a lot of edge cases, but um, I think when, when I approach these problems, I always try to see like, what's the simplest thing you can do that avoids as much ML as possible um, to brute force it. And then how good is that? And if it's good enough, I'm just like, all right, cool, great. I'm gonna move on to the next problem. <laughs> Um, but yeah. if it, but then if there's like room to improve and there's a business case for it, there's no business case because it's a puzzle for fun, but, um, you know, that you can, you can try to optimize from there, but then you have like various steps and like heuristics and logic, and you can try to focus then from there, like what's the bottleneck that's making this difficult that ML could improve or some other process. But that's how, that's how I broke it down. Kind of like, instead of trying like this matching thing, like where are the processes and steps to match? if I were to do this like visually in my head and then automate those. Cool. I think it's, is that, I looked at um, <clears throat> WordNet. You can use Spacey. Uh, oh yeah, okay, Spacey, cool. Yeah, you can use Spacey to get the lemmas um, from it. But I think, I think getting the lemmas is really important because it reduces the variability. Yeah. So Eric, I'm kind of wondering about GPT-2 also. It, it might be manageable in size and it might be able to do semantics, but I was just confessing in the chat, I would have liked to find a transformer that can do semantics, but I just haven't located one yet. You'd think there'd be one that could. This is, this is great because I was thinking, so a lot of times when I come up with, you know, kind of ridiculous ideas of ways to like think of things, I think of Mark Roberg because he like spends, spends like a ridiculous amount of effort to over-engineer a solution to make it kind of something interesting. And that's kind of what I've been thinking about as I've been working on this. So I'm like, yes, this is, this is good. I can learn. I mean, NLP intimidates me. So like having something like stupid small to work on is like, yeah, this is good. Let's, you know, dip, dip my toe in that way. So all great solutions. It's funny. I would approach it differently. I would ask my two kids to find those two words. I think that's like the fastest way for me. There you go. That could work too. <laughs> I'm gonna try what this. Are your weekend. kids' rates? Are they for hire? 
<laughs> of course, yeah, they're they're willing to make mon- make money. Yeah, they got her in their keep. Yeah, early. Uh, go for it. It's funny because I could legitimately see a company like Fang asking that kind of question for like a technical interview, because you you don't even need like an ML solution. You like you could literally treat it as a data structures and algos approach. Um, and that would, I could reasonably see them asking like, how would you do that? Like, they're like, we give you like a pipe, like we give you some like structure that is literally like the thesaurus or something. And what's like the fastest way to look up and to optimize, like what would be the pairs? I could hundred percent see them asking that. I, I just realized Eric, forgive me. Uh, part of Dung Beetle, the first part, was um, this was a this was a goldmine find. I went to thesaurus.com and I was doing an inspection on one of the pages. And guess what? There is only a slightly dirty JSON object with the synonyms and antonyms at various strengths built right in to each of those pages for each word. And you have to do very tiny amount of cleanup, and then you can, it's JSON. You can just use it at the JSON level. I use that as the first stage in Dung Beetle. Then there's a mixture of different online dictionaries you can use that will, like if you hit a spelling error or you need a base word, there was a series of steps I went through to reduce down to the base word and then go and get the synonyms from those on the online dictionaries for ones that did not occur at the source.com. And then finally, I resulted to glove at the end. Uh, so it was a series of things. That's why I'm wishing there was a dang transformer that would just do synonyms. You'd think there would be one out there, but yeah, we, we, we can geek out if we get together on Great question, great discussion, Eric. Thanks so much. Uh, any other questions coming in? I don't see anything coming in on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Uh, apologies for the silence in the background. Uh, no other questions coming in. Okay. I guess we'll. I, guess we begin I actually have a. I actually yes, have a question. Um, so lately, I've been realizing uh, that I actually don't know what the history of data warehouses are. Um, I was watching Joe Reyes' uh, uh, video um, with Bill Emin, I believe, um, talking about data warehouses and how a lot of vendors lately have just moved away from the original data warehouse kind of aspect of it. Um, my question isn't necessarily around data warehouses, but do you think it's worthwhile to pursue learning the history of different technologies and how they've transformed over time? Or is that just kind of like a fool's errand if you're just like interested as a hobby and you should just be focusing more on just the implementation today and what the current context is? You know, the history of ideas, man. I think that's super, super critical, super important uh, is to know the history of ideas and how those ideas came to be. I didn't start appreciating this thing until I started reading like um, like books by Marcus de Sotor or uh, Terry Sosnowski's book, The Film Revolution just to see how ideas have changed, or even Jordan Ellenberg's book uh, on geometry or Hanaki Bong, just how ideas evolve and take shape. I think it's 
And then again, there's like, there's only so many hours in the day, right? So if this is something that you're interested in and it brings you joy in studying it and pursuing it, then by all means, spend the time doing it. Um, but if, if is studying it going to push you further ahead career-wise or in that to give, sense? To give an example that, is... Yeah. I'm very interested in data warehouses, I, I, especially in like analytics engineering, because I just feel like it's just a foundational piece to really drive an ML um, strategy and data strategy. And so my thought process is, you know, knowing the history, would that, would that contribute to me knowing the pros and cons of different approaches? Or is that, should I just be focusing now on like what's currently working today and what's the current kind of hot thing? Not trying to chase, chase trends, but like, you know, why... Yeah. Is it, is it worthwhile to go that deep in the weeds when, you know, I feel like this this core piece of uh, technology is, like, very important? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Intuitively, I would say yes, but let's uh, turn it over to Mikiko. Uh, but before I do that, I was going to say history ideas are fun, cool. As a content creator yourself, you just think about it. If you learn about the history ideas, you can share that with people, you know, kind of take people along that journey with you. I think that's a, a good move. But let's go to Mikiko. Let's hear from Jen. And if anybody else has info, let me know. And if anybody else has questions, do let me know. Because um, we'll also start to wrap it up. So here, Mikiko. So I think there's like two or three kinds of history, right? Some of which is worth knowing, some of which is nice to know, but I don't know if it's worth investing effort. So for example, the history of the personalities within tech. So there, like I, so there's a few, a couple of people I follow on LinkedIn who are like, you know, like they're like IBM fellows. They are distinguished engineers, part of the I E E C whatever society that I will never be a part of. You know, like they're whatever, right? And they'll have some like really interesting stories of like, oh, what was it like with, um, you know, like being around when the first uh, like. I don't know, real like CPU was, was, you know, created or things like that. It, it's really fun hearing those war stories, but at the end of the day, like they were one part granted in a very early stage, but they were only part of like this really long storied history of technology development. So those guys I follow on LinkedIn, it always gives me like chuckles or if I hear the stories on like, you know, like the ML ops, like happy hour, stuff like that. I, like, I love hearing those stories. It gives me so much appreciation, empathy for the shoulders of the giant space that I stand on. And I do think that empathy is important, right? And I, I'm seeing this sometimes too, like there, there's like culture and sort of generation clashes, like in the workplace where I feel like I'm, I'm in the middle kind of in a way where like I'm seeing some of the, some of the young bloods come in and they are kind of sometimes a little disrespectful. They're like, why are we doing this? Why are we all did that, right? But they don't understand the problem that the tools were meant to solve. And so they want to yank out something and replace it, not understanding like the blast radius, right? That's not you, right? That's not you at all. Um, and then they're, but you know, at the same time, like I like learning from the people before me. So I think like the second type of history that is super helpful is understanding like the broad themes of some of the technology ideas. For example, like some of the ideas around what, some of the ideas around data warehouses is less about the technology. So most people don't care whether or not you use the B tree or whatever, right? 
Um, but it's more about the scope of responsibility, for example, like, or the domain around which, like, for example, data mesh, like we did that in my book club, half the engineers were like, okay, so you push the problem to the left and they were senior in staff. Right. And the other half were like, oh, this is like a really interesting, nuanced, innovative way of thinking about technology in, and, you know, and all that. But they had the context behind how sort of the data mesh came out, right? Um, and the things with data mesh, right? Like there's no, one issue that some of the engineers had was they're like, there's no suggestion on how it should be implemented. And it's like, yeah, because it's not, um, it's not a technology solution. It's not about a technology solution. It's, it's about a, a higher level abstraction. But part of the reason why I think they didn't quite understand it and they didn't even understand it enough to say anything for real against it was because they didn't bother knowing the foundational sort of history behind how that developed, right? And all that. So I feel like the first kind of history where it's like the war stories, it's nice to know, but I don't know if it's worth investing in it other than like one-on-one conversations with people and like, what was your experience like? Um, the second kind of history of the history of ideas, I do think it's important because like, for me personally, like even within the company, we do have some legacy technology. It was implemented to deal with a very specific problem. And some of the conditions of that problem still hold, but some of them don't. And the ones where we don't, that's where we might want to retire some of that and consider sort of other technology, you know, but like, you know, so there's that. And then there's a third part about sort of like kind of more specific technology solutions. I do kind of feel sorry for a lot of people who I kind of feel like get hoodwinked by some of these like, you know, startups that do middleware, because a lot of times they're just like literally man, they're managed services of really popular open source libraries and all that. Right. Which is fine. I guess everyone has their own flavor, but I, 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 I don't know. I kind of feel like if you don't have that sort of under underlying under like that underlying understanding of like what the technology is. So for example, a row versus a columnar, like data storage, right? That's important to know. It's probably not super important to understand like the specific algorithm that's being implemented to store like the indexes and all that, but it is kind of good to know like, okay, roughly this is, you know, what like a row versus column, this is what the difference in performance is for read, write. I don't necessarily know if, it's then important to know every single person's various flavors, like GCP versus AWS. I think it's good to know one, then you can kind of compare. But I do feel like history gives you like the filter for understanding um, sort of more durable ideas, you know? And also like what, what they were meant to solve. I think that's the big part is like, what problem was this meant to solve and why? And do those conditions still kind of hold? But I get so confused by like, a lot of the vendor driven content. It's like very overwhelming. That was really helpful, Makiko, that, that breaking it down to those three different kind of areas that, that really connected the dots for me. And definitely where I want to double down on is that like what conditions change? Because like there's technology in like our Starbomb is like five years old. And there's things where, like, for example, like Airflow, I asked them, like, why don't we use Airflow? And they're like, well, Airflow was coming out five years ago when we built this and didn't, it didn't handle X, Y, Z, right? I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Makiko, I, mean, I just need to 
point out real quick that you hurt several several of our feelings that you would put wanting to be some distinguished technologist over the fact that we all fight over what Makiko said in these happy hours. What the hell, chick? Anyway, going ahead. Sorry. If it helps, I don't even remember the name of these people that I follow, but I remember your names. I just see the like, oh, look, they, uh, uh, they, they, I don't know, said congrats to this other person that joined their super secret, cool Mensa club that the rest of us aren't a part of. That's cool. But I know all your names. Yeah, I grew up with, um, sorry, I heard somebody. Um, I grew up with like really old engineers. And when I say that, like I, I worked at companies where people were in their, when I was in my twenties, people were in their late fifties, early sixties at these companies. And they came out of like, they remember where the internet came from, like that, that kind of old school thinking. And I swear, if I ever heard another story about a punch card again, I, I never want to hear another punch card story again. There's some stuff where it's just, you know, and that's kind of the danger of becoming the older, you know, the older uh, trope or, or older stereotype where you're telling the same five stories over and over again about the same topics. And there's just no point. Like, don't learn that history. Don't become that person. But what you want to do is find stories that are educational, not only to you, but that you're going to be able to use in 10 years that's really the stories you want to learn and internalize and really dig into because I had a, a boss who like real engineering, you know what I mean? When I say we call ourselves engineers, but this gentleman was an engineer told stories about how they had to solve certain problems when they were doing nuclear tests because you were trying to get data but the wire was being incinerated, like real engineering challenges. And he had these rich stories about how you go about solving. Truly, no one's ever solved this before. And you're dealing with something that most people are going to say is impossible. But you have to do it anyway. And you have to figure out how to approach a problem like that. You know, and so those are the stories you want to dive into, because eventually you're going to get a problem where you Google it and there's zero search results. You know, you get that, that terrifying moment where you, you go to Google and there's like six search results. They're all in another language and none of them have anything to do with what you, you know, you use the translate and you're all, no, that doesn't, yeah, that's not what I'm looking for. That's like, that's the horrible moment. And you want to collect stories that'll allow you to begin to understand. And, you know, that's where data warehouses are kind of interesting because if you dive into the history of it, Data warehouses showed up before anybody had big data. Everybody had like really small data, but they were all saying, we're going to be gathering this massive, massive data sets. And so data warehouses showed up and nobody needed them. And so they had to like rebrand it. And so you can listen to the stories of Microsoft, you know, and all of the early data warehouses and BI early adopter. And, you know, and so it's interesting if you're going into marketing, you know, those are the kinds of stories you want to tell because as a marketer, you need to understand what do you do if you get to market too early? 
what do you do? How do you pivot? And that's what's interesting about them is you begin to get into case studies where you can say, and this is where you're going to find yourself actually getting value out of these stories short term is you'll come to points in your career where there's no, there's no frame of reference and you have to go more abstract and start working with people who just figured something out that you are now dealing with something similar around. And so that's where I'd say it's really important is those two areas where one, 10 or 15 years from now, when you're in your mid twenties, you're going to be mid twenties, about 10 years from now, you know, when you get to that point of being senior, I call them senior plus plus, you're going to have these stories to tell. And part of these are stories that you heard, but other parts of them are really stories you lived through. Like you're going to be talking about the birth of data science and living through it. And those are the stories you want to bring with you because they're invaluable. You know, for me, learning about how you solve, okay, so we got a nuclear blast happening and you got, you know, cause it's not like you can walk up to the wire and figure out what's going on. <laughs> you know, there's some, and that's, those are the great stories that you can take with you and teach people, you know, that like I got taught about the real fundamental challenges that you may one day face where there's no, there's no guidelines for it. And then the other ones are really for you personally, as you're moving along, the stories you think are similar to some of the things that you might run into in the future, but kind of extrapolating out what happens when I run out of ideas, what happens when I run out of help, you know, how did these people do this? And the more complex the problems that they solve, the more rigorous their methodology has to get. And you can take pieces of their methodology and bring them into every project. And you start producing just better results on a daily basis. And all of a sudden people are coming up to you like, how did you even, you know, and that's kind of the moment of Zen is like when you've incorporated enough other people's ideas into your workflow and into your methodology. And all of a sudden people are like, wow, that's brilliant. And you're all, no, I'm just stealing from other people, <laughs> but don't say that because you came up with it just like I did. I, I steal from Ben all the time. Just, just letting you know. Well, that's good. Cause I steal from you. I mean, I, I just, you know, <laughs> mine's behind a paywall. So you never see it. I love it. I love it. Um, he was talking about, uh, Luxury about the days before version control and open source. I mean, yeah, with open source, it's like steal it, make it better, build on top of it, make it flexible. Love it. Uh, Tom, you have a statement. Go for it. I think, Navi, were you waiting to talk? I didn't want to steal I, your spot. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I was just kind of adding on to what Mikiko said. So go ahead. Okay, there's been a new state improvement in our Zoom grid. And I don't wanna see it go away, so I want us all to encourage and applaud this maturity change. It's the color of Harpreet's beard. I think it's a great improvement, and I don't wanna see it go back. Okay, good. We're all feeling the same way. Harpreet, man, makes you look so, like you look pretty, you're a good looking guy, and you look great before, but damn, dude, you look good now. I was hiding. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate that. I was hiding behind the, the beard bar far too long. I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just, let's just let it rip. Uh, it's a little bit more evenly distributed now than, than it was when I first started buying it. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, let me go for it. 
So I think the, the original question about data warehouses, like I suddenly felt old <laughs> in this conversation because um, the warehouses that I remember were where we were pulling data from like Unix and passing those SAS commands and using my C prompts and whatnot. And those in those days, um, but I think they, you know, I wouldn't say that don't study them. I would say that the history of each industry is different. The maturity of those warehouses of these industries is different. Um, and if that's where you want to go, then find the industry that you either work in or care about and go backwards because that is going to vary a lot based on how mature that industry is and how they've built their warehouses or not on decades. So um, for me, I think retail, CPG, the Nielsen's, uh, the financial services have like 50 plus year old warehouses and their history is a lot more advanced and old uh, and how they've evolved uh, during this time. So, you know, you can always kind of go back there and see which are the more mature industries where um, you can gather more and see how they've actually started there and moved all the way to uh, building algos, productionalizing them, using those models, getting into analytics and so on and so forth. So um, there are places that you can go, but I would cherry pick based on, you know, what your interest is. And um, uh, yeah, because you can get lost pretty quickly also. So, you know, and I don't, honestly, I, I agree with Mikiko, I don't know what you're gonna do with it, but if that's where you wanna go, then I would cherry pick where you wanna go. Yeah, that's super helpful. I didn't even realize, but yeah, a financial industry is like a really good use case. Um, so yeah, I'm totally gonna do that. I'm, I'm kind of inspired. I kind of want to write a blog on this. So um, look out soon. Maybe I'll be able to pitch it to someone who wants to to have me write it. So make it happen. Great question, Mark. Great discussion. Take that from Tico. Go for it. Yeah, I think the I, I think what it comes down to is understanding like the problems and the solution and how it took the the tech form. Cause like when I think about it, you almost don't even need to know like kind of the time points or the epochs, right? Like you don't necessarily need to have the chronological history, but like, so for example, the thing that drove me nuts is like when I was first getting into sort of the more kind of engineering practices and people were like, oh, you should use Docker. And I'm like, what's a Docker? And they're like, it's a container. I'm like, what the hell is a container? It's like, oh, well, a container is blah, 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 and a VM, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, stop. What is a VM? <laughs> right. And like, in, 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 like, they were answering the question, right? They're like, oh, it solves this problem. And I'm like, but if I'm, if I'm like new, like, so if I'm new to the problem and the practice, like, please don't explain it to me as if I'm not smart enough to Google it and have seen that same explanation across like 50 or 60 different tech blogs, like explain to me as a new user, fresh brand spanking new eyes. Um, why should I be using a, why should I be using a container versus like a virtual environment? What are they? What problems are they meant to solve or things like that? And I kind of feel like sometimes too, that sort of that laddering of here, you know, like, 
first came VM, but first came physical computers, then came VMs, then came, you know, virtual environments, which are basically just folders anyway. Um, sometimes there's a runtime, but they're basically folders, right? But, and then came containers, right? And it's like, I wasn't there for the prior two or three evolutions. So in my head, they're solving problems that I didn't even know existed because I'm like so new, right? So I, I do kind of feel like there's a certain sort of, like, I love that quote that came from, I posted it from the designing data intensive applications. Could it, cause it is kind of true, right? Like wherever you enter into your engineering or computing or tech journey, um, a lot of times there isn't really good high quality content or educational resources for that entry point. A lot of it is just kind of assuming sort of that you've already been there. So like, I don't know, like that's, that's the way I kind of think about it is if I can kind of articulate the problem and the solution and the chain of problem solutions, then that's like a good spot to be. I think that's a good kind of history. I think some of the other stuff is like, you can take it or leave it, but it's also an opportunity if you want to like do that content as well. Like I was, I thought it was a great opportunity for me to learn more about containers and VMs um, when I was writing about it, because I was like, I wish someone had explained it to me in this way. Right. Not about the war stories, not about, not that I was like, not as if I was an enterprise company that had been in the trenches for 20 years, but explain it to me as if I'm new, I'm fresh, you know, I don't know. That would be nice. So I think this would be really, really helpful. I was about to say it's really helpful because like, for me, the reasoning is like, beyond just learning because I'm interested is like, I actually want to apply that knowledge that was in the past to the future. And like, it goes beyond just like the history of technology, but like what's like the social and like market history. And so I think a great example, like the kind of my mind keeps on going back to, it's not necessarily history yet because it's happening now, but um, why like why ELT all of a sudden becomes super popular um, right now, even though it's been around before, but like why did it become popular? And like, I think I read some blog where it was essentially like storage became super cheap in data warehouses, cloud computing became very fast, like BigQuery and like stuff like that. Um, and so therefore it's just much easier to do transformations and data warehouses and, and cheaper and faster. And that's why people shifted towards that. And so like, I would love to know, like, what's that thought process like 15 years ago where it was like, well, why did people choose Hadoop? Right. <laughs> um, like what was the problem, problem use case with big data? Why did they choose Hadoop and use this situation? And then finally, like, why did they leave it? You know, um, it's such a quick time. I think being able to understand those problem statements and the solutions they come up with it, given that like historical context, I feel like kind of what Ben was saying, give me clues of like, when I face future problems or try to combine in unique ways, one, I don't repeat things that just didn't work. And then two, I can actually like identify like what's actually novel. Um, and that's, that's kind of like the direction I'm coming from. So uh, that hopefully provides more context, but y'all have been providing really excellent answers that really crystallize kind of the words around that. Speaking of Hadoop being old, antiquated, outdated, built on ancient technologies, these in modern, something modern, right? Something scalable, something that um, just works a lot better, like Pachyderm, for example. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Uh, Tom says the name Kubernetes stems from an ancient Greek word for helmsman, someone who steers a ship like a container ship, which extends the ship wheel level. Yes. Uh, and also the package manager in Kubernetes is called helm. Um, 
All right, cool. Does not look like there's any other questions. Thanks so much uh, for that. Great discussions. Um, so keep an eye out for a uh, podcast released probably sometime this weekend. My um, editor ran into some issues, um, but we'll have that episode released for y'all. So Danny Ma, I'm doing a live stream tomorrow with Kiko and Mark and Zach. Uh, it'll be at 1 p.m. Central Time. Uh, so that's 2 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Pacific. So join in on that. Um, this uh, initiative undertaken by the Kiko, she's the, uh, the helmsman of this project, um, talking about mental health in data science. Um, this will be a great discussion. So definitely tune into that. Um, Mikiko, anything to say about this event? I, you know, I think, so the, 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 the group of us tomorrow, right? Um, you know, you, Harpreet, Mark, and Zach, it's interesting because I feel like at like the same time, all of us were individually having conversations with each other about mental health. I know we've all had our specific journeys and I know we've also been there in each other's lives when we were all going through burnouts, but it's fascinating because a lot of times I do hear people saying like, why does it matter? Like, you know, they'll say stuff on LinkedIn, like, well, why does it matter? It doesn't impact your professional life, yada, 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 right? Like, but it is really important. And, you know, the sad part is I think we all know, we all know people in our lives who I think they would have benefited tremendously from not having that stigma, from, you know, having an open, judgment-free uh, place to kind of talk about their experiences. But more importantly, like for all of us, our journeys will manifest different, differently, right? Like my journey as a, as a queer Asian woman is going to look different from, you know, like your journey, from Mark's journey, from Zach's journey, and vice versa. And I think, it, I think it's going to be fantastic. There's going to be all four of us. We're going to be under the same roof. And I'm really kind of hoping if this goes well, that maybe we'll be able to do sort of more sessions. And the other part that I think is really fantastic is a lot of times I think when people talk about mental health, it's always in this context of like people who obviously sort of like, I don't say obviously need help, but they fit a certain stereotype. And so the other part that I really love about this uh, group of us is that we're all like, we're all achievers in different ways. You know, we've seen that look, you know, you can move forward, but you do have to take control of your mental health journey. And there are sort of voices and experience out there. So I think it's going to be a wonderful event. If this goes well, I'm hoping we have more of these talks in the future because I know there are other people that we know, second, first, third degree connections who also have different experiences. So yeah, I hope, you know, people tune in, they enjoy it um, and that we'll have like future uh, sessions, you know, in the future with, with different people and talking about different experiences. So yeah, I'm excited. Thank you so much for uh, driving the initiative for this. It'll be a great conversation. I'm excited for it. Again, this happening tomorrow, so hopefully you all can join in. Um, cool. We'll go ahead and wrap it up, y'all. Thanks so much for joining today. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate y'all. Uh, I'm looking for a guest host next week. If anybody is available, please do let me know. Uh, I got a cool thing happening next week. I'm going to uh, going to this place in British Columbia called the Osoyoos, which is like the southern part of British Columbia called the Canadian Desert. Uh, we're going there for my son's second birthday. I believe the kid's two years old. Um, that's the trip, man. Two years old. Um, and here I am 
turning 39 in a few weeks. Uh, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun, man. We got my 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 parents, my wife's parents, my grandparents, uh, all in one giant cabin, uh, four bedrooms, four baths. That's that's needed, so we don't get any good away. Um, but I'm excited for that, man. Right there on the lake, just chill and relax. So hopefully, y'all could uh, still join next week, and I can find somebody that can help out. Uh, let me know. You guys, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. We look forward to seeing you all tomorrow. One more friend, you got one life on the planet. Why not try to do some good? Cheers, everyone.